now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Tom Ginsberg, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Chicago. And I recently wrote a piece for Persuasion called Filibuster Reform is a Dangerous Necessity. And of course, what prompted this was the discussion over the last couple of weeks about whether the Democrats should get rid of the filibuster in order to push through their voting rights reforms, two bills, including a whole package of things to make it easier to vote. And that effort, of course, famously failed. But I was trying to interject something into the debate that took a slightly broader view. And, of course, traditionally, we grow up learning that the filibuster is part of this set of minoritarian institutions which help to protect American democracy. I have changed my view on it in recent years, and I've come to see it as basically a problem. And that, of course, is because its use is now routine. Instead of being an exceptional device for really important policy things where the minority really wanted to have a conversation, it's now being used just for political obstructionism. And that calls for getting rid of it. Of course, it's found nowhere in the Constitution. It's just a Senate rule. And there's nothing democratic in any small d sense about it. Obviously, it's got nothing to do with majority rule, that's for sure. There's no reason for fidelity to the Constitution to follow it or to keep it. So that's what I was arguing for. Of course, it's a double-edged sword, and that is because to get rid of the filibuster would be just one other new step in a cycle of political escalation that started between the parties, from my view, about 1995, where they just are taking ever more serious steps against each other, and political gridlock and polarization has followed. And the filibuster, you might think, would be a device to get back to the center in the sense that it requires supermajorities, but that's not what's happening. The other problem with the filibuster is that it blocks policies that are preferred by a vast majority of Americans. Congress, you know, has a very low level of public support. And one of the reasons is it's basically a gridlock system. There's no way to get anything through or very minor things only can get through and not the big policies Americans want. So, for example, most Americans would like some form of reasonable gun control. Most Americans actually oppose affirmative action, interestingly enough. The death penalty is not particularly popular. You go down the list and there's lots of policies on both sides of the aisle which would be able to be passed if we got rid of the filibuster. And so when periods when you have one party controlling the presidency, the House and the Senate, they'd be able to get it through. And I don't know what the dynamic effects would be. It could be we'd have more policy swings, but that in turn might lead to more moderation and more cross-party talk. It's just hard to predict. All I know is what we've got isn't working from the point of view of most Americans. Now, there's certainly some dangers, of course, and the not only escalation, but, you know, it may already be the case that just by proposing this potential and limited filibuster reform, the Republicans will respond by escalating. They seem to be quite good at that. So who knows? But I would like to take the gamble and see what we get. I think ultimately it would be better for Republicans than Democrats. They don't seem to realize that and time to give it a go. So I hope you read the piece, and I hope you find it thought-provoking. You may disagree, of course. That's part of the point of persuasion. And feel free to comment and let me know what you think. Tom Ginsburg's piece, called Filibuster Reform is a Dangerous Necessity, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. 
My guest today is Javier Cercas. Javier is one of my favorite Spanish novelists. In fact, he's one of my favorite novelists. He has these searching, haunting novels, as well as nonfiction books, that really grapple with the history of Spain and the way that it shapes the lives of people in the country today. Soldiers of Salamis is probably one of his most famous books in that vein, but I'm also especially fond of The Anatomy of a Moment and others. Javier and I spoke about Spanish history, about the way in which the memory of the Civil War continues to shape the country today, and what kind of lessons that might hold for other countries that are trying to build a positive national narrative, but are trying to have a sense of what connects them, of what makes them sharing a state important and meaningful, while acknowledging in a forthright and upfront manner the dark sides of a country's history. Javi Sarkas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm a great fan of your work, and I feel like my view of Spanish history is in large part influenced by your books. But one of the things that you've really thought about is the sort of founding moment of Spanish democracy, at least the founding moment in the modern era in the 1970s and 1980s. Tell us about how Spain manages to transition from the dictatorship of Franco to a modern democracy and the sort of zigzag process of that, the way in which there's a coup attempt that tries to undermine that and that actually in some ways ends up, as I understand it, solidifying Spanish democracy. It is a very complex process, I think, and quite original because, you know, history books say that civil war spread from 1936 to 1939, but this is not true. The truth is that the Spanish Civil War lasted not three years, but 43 years. I mean, Franco's dictatorship was not peace, was war by other means. That's the truth. So the end of the dictatorship, the end of war was 75 when Franco died or 78 when we had the constitution, democratic constitution, or 81 when the last coup d'etat, at least classical coup d'etat, took place in Spain. So it was a very difficult because I would say almost theoretically impossible because, you know, Yasha, to change a dictatorship for a democracy and so long a dictatorship for a democracy, normally everybody thought that there would be a war or there would be blood or there would be a revolution or there would be something like that. And what the people in power tried and also the opposition, very important. The transition was made incredibly by phalangists, by people in power, by Frankists, and by communists, people that theoretically didn't believe in democracy. And they did this change. And so it was very difficult, I would say almost theoretically impossible, to change a dictatorship for a democracy peacefully. And they, they did it. And in a very strange way, in many ways by chance, there were many things unpredictable that happened there. And so it worked with a lot of problems. Uh, we could not make justice. It was impossible to make justice. Why? Because the opposition to Frankism were not powerful enough to impose justice. But at the same time, the people from the power, from Frankism, 
were not able to stay in power. So there was a sort of equilibrium between both of them. And that was so strange, that was so original, that, as you know very well, in other countries, I think, for instance, Poland, when they had to change a dictatorship, along, also a long dictatorship, communist dictatorship in that case, for democracy, they looked all the time at Spain because they thought that it worked. Not in a perfect way, because, of course, perfection doesn't exist in history, <laughs> but in a reasonable way. And the fact is that today, Yasha, it's very important to say that this period, more than 40 years, is the best period in modern Spanish history. That's obvious. That's not saying something strange or I'm not too optimistic. This is a fact. Today, Spain is a democracy. And that's the triumph, in a sense. Of course, we have problems today. Mainly, in my opinion, because democracy is something dynamic, not static. And I remember always this verse by Bob Dylan. He says something like, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying, right? And democracy is the same. If it doesn't improve, it gets worse. And we have not been able to improve it. And when the crisis came, 2008, we discovered the problems we had because we haven't done our job, which was to improve democracy. So how is it that this set of people who aren't Democrats ended up creating the democracy? What was the pressures on the regime that led a set of people who certainly weren't ideologically committed to democracy to embrace it? Was it just the death of Franco and the not being an obvious successor? Was it the at the time in the European context, the obvious victory of democracy and the lack of any other fascist states that could remain to be a model for Spain. You know, why is it that people who had in many ways pledged their lives to fighting an attempt at a democratic republic ended up facilitating the transition to one? I think that the context was very important. And I think that Europe helped to construct democracy in Spain. If you compare it with the last experiment of democracy in Spain in the 30s, the context was not good. I mean, in all Europe, fascism and communism was growing up. Well, in the 70s, democracy was there, and that was important, first of all. Then the leaders had evolved. You know, for instance, the leader of the Communist Party, which is one of the main characters of the anatomy of moment, this man who had been a Stalinist, who had been very hard-line communist, had discovered in the 70s that communism should evolve. He was one of the leaders of something called Eurocommunism, which was a sort of almost social democracy, you know, with Berlinguer, in Italy, Enrico Berlinguer and Georges Marchais in France, they thought that communism should be compatible with democracy. And that was a conviction that they had. Also in Spain, they knew that it was impossible, or some people knew, the people in power, especially the architect of the transition, which was Adolfo Suárez, the main character in the anatomy of a moment, he was a very special man very practical. He was not an intellectual. And he felt that it was impossible to sustain 
a dictatorship that it was necessary for the country to evolve to a new democracy. They didn't know what kind of democracy, of course, not even the king, Juan Carlos, which was very important for this movement. So it was a mixture of things, the context, the conviction of these guys, and also many things. For instance, the fact that Spain had an economical structure, really modern, close to the economical structures of France, Italy, and all these democratic countries. So they felt that democracy was good for all of us. And it was, of course. So Anatomy of a Moment is about a coup attempt in February 1981, I believe, against really the very, very young democracy at that point in Spain. And these two figures that you just mentioned, Suarez and Carrillo, are at the heart of a book for their sort of defiance of the colonel who tries to overthrow democracy, who enters the chamber of the Spanish parliament with a pistol or revolver and tries to subdue them. You know, we've lived on January 6th of last year through a kind of burlesque coup attempt in the United States. Why did the coup in February 1981 in Spain fail? And is there any lessons we can draw from that for when institutions endure? I think that what is more useful is to compare what happened in the Congress of the United States with what happened in Catalonia, in the sense that the people in Congress thought they were for democracy. They thought that they were trying to defend democracy, to protect democracy. That was what they thought, because the power, the president, told them to do that. In Catalonia, something similar happened, in the sense that It was the local government, the government of the state of Catalonia. Spain is a sort of federal state, as you know. Maybe not everybody knows that, but it's a sort of federal state. And states have power, a lot of power. So the government in Catalonia told people that that was democracy, that this fake referendum was the democracy, a referendum without guarantees and without anything like that. And they wanted to took power through that fake referendum that was against the laws, against the constitution, against everything. So I think, Yasha, that these are the new coups. I mean, that's what is scary. That's what national populism has created. The new coups are not like the old coups, like the 1981 in Spain, that were obviously against democracy. These coups are against democracy, but in the name of democracy. And that's what is dangerous. If this is more dangerous, I guess that part of it is that in 1981, anybody who cared about democracy or thought they cared about democracy was on the same side, which is to say that they all saw the nature of this coup and, you know, across vast ideological divides, they could unite in defense of democratic institutions precisely because the nature of a coup attempt against it was so openly and blatantly anti-democratic. The problem is that at that point, 1981, the Spanish democracy was in a bad moment. It was six years after Franco's death. It was the beginning of democracy. And we were in a sort of collective depression, I would say. In fact, historians talk about disenchantment. People talked about sort of disenchantment at that moment. If you compare the approval of democracy in 76, for instance, or 77, All the people that have studied that said at that time, the approval of democracy was like 95% or 93% of people were for democracy. Uh, In 81, 
there was a sort of depression. There was a sort of disenchantment, more of the functioning of democracy than of democracy itself. And so that explains something terrible, Yasha, that in that day, few people risked their lives to defend democracy. That's very hard to say, but it's the truth. I mean, people didn't go to the streets to defend democracy. They didn't go out. They didn't fight for democracy. And it's logical because if you think of it, and this is a very important lesson for all of us, I think. After four years of dictatorship, when democracy came, people thought that democracy was, you know, something like paradise. We're going all to be like rich and beautiful and blonde and we're going to be happy, etc. And when they discovered, because there was a big crisis, because there was terrible terrorism by ETA, the separatist, the secessionist Basque group, etc. There were lots of problems, economical problems, etc. Well, people discovered that it was not paradise because democracy is not paradise because democracy is just the best way we've found to deal with our problems, but it is not paradise. So this book, The Anatomy of Moments, is concentrated on these three men that in parliament, they stood there in their places. They didn't look for cover while these putschists were firing in the parliament. And these three men that stayed in their places are a symbol of the tiny opposition that these putschists found. I mean, the country was not strong against this attempt of destroying democracy. Democracy is really fragile. That's the lesson. You should fight for democracy every day, because if not, democracy is in danger. I think there's a really important lesson that the stability of democracy always depends, at least in part, on the performance of the government and the regime, which is to say that when people feel like they know that they're going to have a nice dinner at home and they know that the future is going to be better than the present, the kids are going to do better than them, that really helps democratic stability. And so it's interesting that this putsch attempt came at this moment at which, you know, all the hopes that people have and there's a transition to democracy were starting to be dashed. They were so down on it. But why is it that the coup attempt failed ultimately? You say it's the courage of these free people who stayed in their places at this moment. That was the symbol of it, but there was deeper forces behind that as well. Why is it that despite there are not millions of people coming out in the street in order to protect democracy? the coup attempt ultimately failed. In fact, nobody was on the street. We must remember that. That's hard to say, but it's the truth. Why it failed? Probably many reasons. You must remember that the response of the uh, government of the states was, this is an internal affair. So the states was not against the coup, explicitly at least. That's very important to say, because the context was good, but not absolutely good. Ronald Reagan was in power and was scared about what was happening in Spain and what was happening in Portugal. So they were not clearly supporting the Spanish democracy. Why it failed? There's many factors, but there's one very important. It is the king of Spain. Today, after many wrongs he's done, personal wrongs with love affairs and probably corruptions affair, his figure is very low in the esteem of the Spanish people. But it is absolutely true that he was essential. I mean, I'm not a monarchist. The truth is the truth. <laughs> he was essential for the transition to dictatorship, to democracy, and he was essential at that moment. Why? It's very simple. Because he was appointed by Franco as king, right? Franco thought that 
after him, there wouldn't be a, a democracy. The king would be a sort of autocratic king with all his powers, etc. And the king transformed the country or helped to transform decisively to transform the country. And he was the chief of the army. And Franco told the army, you should obey him as you obeyed me. And he stopped that. He made mistakes before the coup, as all the ruling class in Spain made mistakes. But in the end, at that moment, he said, stop it. Don't go for it. And the army obeyed him because he was appointed by Franco. He was the hero of Franco. So that was absolutely essential to stop the coup. And then after that, of course, people discovered that they wanted democracy. But it was after that shock, to put it clearly, if the king would have supported the coup d'etat, of course, the coup d'etat would have triumphed. That's for sure. The transition to democracy in Spain is different from that in most Western European countries after the fall of dictatorships or fascist governments, in part because there wasn't a clean break. In Italy or in Germany, the military defeat of the fascist regimes made for a clean break. And even though both of those countries have complicated debates about how to memorialize the past and how that past should play into their contemporary identity, you know, the post-war order was built on an unambiguous rejection of what came before. Germany certainly was in denial about the extent of the crimes of the Holocaust and the extent of the crimes of the Nazi regime well into the 50s and 60s and arguably the 70s or the 80s. But even the first German governments quite clearly saw themselves as distinct from what came before. In Spain, because of the strange evolutionary nature of the transition, there never was a clean break in quite the same way. And of course, there had been a civil war, which was in many ways deeper and more protracted than in most other European countries as well. And as you're saying, in, in some ways, it lasted for over three decades, not for three years. How has that sort of shaped the debate about historical memory in Spain over the last four decades? And how live do those questions remain today? That's a very difficult question, and that's a very serious debate in Spain and everywhere. But yes, the point is that the civil war and dictatorship was a big collective trauma, like it was the Second World War in Europe. The difference between Spain and Germany, Italy, France, etc., was that in Spain, the bad guys won the war, right? So that's why I say that the war lasts till the 70s. And you put it very well. It is not completely true that Germany, for instance, changed everything after the war. I mean, Germany began to look seriously at its past in the 70s. That's the moment in which a new generation of Germans begin to say, well, what we did, the Holocaust, what is our responsibility? And they began to digest its own past, which is a terrible past. In Spain, it's something similar, in fact. Look, Yasha, when I was young, I thought that my country was different from all countries, and only my country had problems with its past. But this is not true. All countries, and all people, personal people, but all countries have problems with their past, all of them, because we all have wars, we all have blood, we all have real problems. 
And the real question, and I would say that's one of the main questions that some of my books put is what we do with this past. We all have a good heritage and a bad heritage. We'll more or less know what to do with our good heritage. But what do we do with our bad heritage? Do we conceal it? Do we invent, you know, a different past? We do create this past or we look at it seriously. I think that it is absolutely necessary to, first of all, to know it in all its complexities and then to understand it. And to understand doesn't mean to justify. It means exactly the contrary. It is to give you the instruments not to repeat the same mistakes. And Spain, it is understandable, as Germany, after the uh, dictatorship and after the real end of the war, as I told you, it was logical that people didn't want to look back. It's logical. I mean, you can understand that even from a personal point of view. After personal trauma, you know that the trauma is there, but you don't want to look at it. But in the end, you must do it because the problem is still there. And past is not dead. It's not even past. Past is always here. Past is a dimension of the present without which present is mutilated. So past is here. And what we do with that, what we must do, in my opinion, is to look at it, to understand and to know it. And Spanish people, as I understand it, we began to do it almost 20, 30 years after the end of Franco's dictatorship. If you think of it, more or less as German people did after the end of the war. And our problem is that we didn't do it very well. That's our problem. We have not done it in a serious way. Well, there is a book called The Imposter in which I deal with these problems we have with, with our past. We created in the moment in which we needed to deal with it seriously, to look at it seriously, to the truth, to an awful civil war and an awful dictatorship. We invented a different past. The imposter is about the man who invented his own history. He invented that he was a real man. It's not fiction. It's a novel without fiction. It's, it's about the man, real man called Enrique Marco, who invented a biography for himself, a biography of hero of anti-Frankism, of victim of the Nazis, etc. And he was complete fake. It was completely false. And he was, for me, a symbol of what we were doing with our past. Walk us through this metaphor. What should Spain have done with its past and what did it do with its past? And how is this character a symbol for that failure to deal with the past in the right way? This character is a symbol because he is a symbol of how we invented a beautiful past to conceal our hard past. Our past of the dictatorship that lots of people accepted because Franco died in his bed. And he died in his bed because till the last years, the dictatorship had lots of people who supported it. Obviously, the beautiful past is not to say that everything was wonderful under Franco or that the civil war wasn't bloody. The beautiful past you're talking about is we were all opponents of Franco and we Absolutely. were all... Exactly. We were opponents to Franco. We were all heroes of the war. We were all victims. And this was not true. I mean, the truth was much more complex and much more hard. We haven't accepted the whole truth. We haven't accepted, for instance, that there was a civil war, a terrible war in which Good people, I mean, the people that were on the good side of history, the Republicans also did bad things. 
That's the complexity of our past. That Franco died in his bed because lots of people were with him. The Republic was an excellent, wonderful experiment, but it made lots of mistakes. And during the war, not only Franco's people killed Republicans, but also Republicans did terrible things. And that's accepting the whole past and to understand everything. That's what I tried in my books. I tried to understand why fascism was so fascinating for young people in the 30s. And we have adulterated that. We have put this aside. We have created a vision of fascism that is completely false. Fascism was, as you know very well, fascinating for a lot of people. And that's what is so dangerous. That's why so many people was for it, especially young people. So we created this idea that our history was a history of heroism and of victims, which are the heroes of our time, and et cetera, et cetera. And that was really bad because the only way, Yasha, in my opinion, to do something useful with the future is to have the past, and especially the worst past, always present. If you forget the past, you are, well, as the sentence says, you are prepared to repeat it. So, you know, I was born in 1982 in Germany, and I grew up in the country in, in the 80s and the 90s, and then really started to think about politics in the late 90s and the 2000s. And that was precisely the moment when Germany was grappling with its own past and with a role that does or should play in contemporary Germany. And there was this sort of twin imperative, I think, which is really difficult to negotiate between, one of which is to be upfront about the past, a past that in the German case is especially horrible. But the other is that you need some kind of sense of collective spirit, some kind of sense of collective, if not pride, then cooperation or identification in order to be able to go on as a country. If you only define your country by its worst parts, then you're not going to be able to be a functioning society going forward. And now that I live in the United States, and America is at a moment of grappling quite deeply with its own difficult parts of history, with slavery and its aftermath, as well as other negative aspects of America's past, that question stands at the forefront again of American politics at the moment. How can we be honest and upfront about the horrific parts of American history, but without losing the hope of building a kind of collective spirit, a kind of national sentiment, perhaps a kind of patriotism that actually allows us to say, all of us Americans from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from different parts of the world can go forward and actually make this you know, really difficult experiment, as you were saying, in democratic governance succeed. So do you think that the Spanish experience has any lessons for that? Or do you have any thoughts about how this honest dealing with the past can go hand in hand with, you know, the kind of common spirit you need in order to actually make democracy work? I think in this respect, Spain is not an exception. It has lots of things in common with other countries. We all have the same problems, finally. We are more similar than we think. We are not exceptional. So I think that they must go hand in hand. The acceptance and the uh, knowledge of the worst past means that you know also the good past. And this is essential. You cannot have one thing without the other. The Republic, for instance, before the Civil War, had many, many aspects 
that were very good in every respect. And there were mistakes. So we must know the good things and the bad things and be conscious of all of them. And the transition is exactly the same. We must accept that the fact that it was not perfect because a clean break with dictatorship would be better. Although some victims were treated with respect, etc., it was not enough. It should be better. I think that the Germans are the best example we have in Europe of how to treat with the best, with honesty and with bravery. You need honesty and you need bravery. But at the same time, accepting all these problems that are real, that we still are suffering, you must accept also the fact that more than 40 years of democracy, it's exceptional because the history of Spain has been really bad. I mean, the modern Spanish history has been really bad. We have had many coup d'etats, many civil wars, many things like that. And this is the longest period of democracy. And right now, we have reasons to be proud, uh, real reasons. We are part of the most ambitious political project of our century, which is the European Union. This Union of Europe is a great project. It's a really ambitious project, maybe something unique in many senses in history. And it's the only way to preserve in Spain and in Europe peace, prosperity, and democracy. And this has happened because we are there. We are part of it. So we have many things to be proud of, but we cannot be proud of these things if we are not conscious of our problems, which are real. Where does that leave sort of Spanish self-understanding today? Do you think that if for a long time the split between people who are more sympathetic to the Republic and people who perhaps were descended from opponents of it or at least hadn't entirely rejected the Franco regime was still sort of somewhat noticeable in Spanish politics if it still happened to some extent to structure the political competition between the Partido Popular on the right and the PSOA on the left. Does that still feel like a live issue? And what kind of sense of Spanish common patriotism exists today? Well, the idea of patriotism, it's true, is a suspect. Even for me, I must say that. The dictatorship used this word in such a bad way and also the uh, nationalism inside Spain has used it in such a bad way that it's suspect. And generally speaking, the idea of mixing feeling with politics. For me, this is not a good idea. I prefer rational politics. I understand that you have stressed the idea that we need also this feeling, this sentiment to put together a country. But I'm a bit skeptical about it because I've seen Catalonia, and of course we've suffered for 40 years, what can be done with feeling. Of course, extreme feeling and the invasion of politics by feeling. When feelings invade politics, this is the end of democracy because you cannot discuss about feelings. You can discuss about reasons, about issues, but not about feelings. But I don't think that today these are real problems in Spain. I mean, I don't think that the people that still think that Frankism was not that bad, 
This is not a real political issue today. We have an extreme right that is dangerous, of course, but is more dangerous not because of his vision of the past. They use the past to a political purpose. I mean, the past is not a real issue and it's not dividing as I feel it. And of course, there is people that are still nostalgic of the dictatorship and some of them of the Republic. But it is not a real issue. In the 30s, the discussion between Republic and monarchy was the discussion between dictatorship and democracy. That was the uh, dilemma. Today, it is ridiculous to think about that. I mean, the best democracies in the world, as you know better than myself, are also monarchies like Scandinavian monarchies. And it is not a real problem. The dilemma today is that if we want a better democracy, that's the real problem. The point is that not only dictatorships, but also political parties, and especially populist parties, use the past to create artificial, fictional problems. We've seen that, especially in the nationalist Catalonia, and we've seen that in many countries. But this is not a real issue. So let me ask you about two other developments that are going on in Spain at the moment, and you've mentioned both of them. One is sort of the rise of Vox, the far-right populist party, and then perhaps after that we'll get to talk about Catalonia. You know, so Vox is the first sort of far-right political party of any real standing in Spain since the early 1980s, if I'm not wrong. What is the nature of it? I take it it, a little bit like these other populist movements, claims to be standing up for true democracy rather than to oppose democracy. In that sense, perhaps it has changed or evolved uh, from the uh, people plotting the coup in the early 80s. And yet it seems quite threatening in the way that other far-right populist parties across the Western world now do. Tell us a little bit about sort of the nature of Vox, its rise and the extent to which we should be concerned about it. Well, I'm not a political scientist. I'm just a novelist and a citizen. So my opinion is just the opinion of a citizen. But I think that both problems, the rise of Vox, so an extreme right in Spain, and the rise of Catalonia, on the rise of successions in Catalonia, are absolutely connected. You cannot think the one without the other one. When political scientists at the beginning of this century met, all the questions for the political scientists in Spain was why there is no extreme right party in Spain? Because everywhere in Europe, there was the extreme right, except, I think, Portugal and Ireland, especially after the 2008 crisis. And uh, why Vox appeared? It's very easy. The main issue of Vox is Spanish nationalism. And why this extreme Spanish nationalism appeared? Because in Catalonia, there was a extreme nationalism, a nationalism that tried to break the rule of law, that tried to break the constitution, that put the country, that put Catalonia in a terrible situation. The greatest Catalan historian, Josep Fontana, who was a secessionist, talk about, in the peak of the crisis, talk about a pre-war atmosphere. And I agree completely with him. And then against that moment, against that extreme separatist movement, Vox was born. So it is a reaction. Of course, there are many other reasons, but this is, in my opinion, the main reason. And of course, it is scary because nationalism, extreme nationalism, especially, it's always scary. And it's very bad for all of us. So let's go a little bit into this question of Catalonia. So you referred to a referendum in 2015. As I understand it, and you'll correct me if I'm getting this wrong, 
there was no constitutional authority for the regional government to organize this referendum. And so that's why you refer to it as a kind of legal referendum. It didn't have any kind of legal recognition, but the regional government, semi-devolved government, which was run by people who favor the independence of Catalonia, sort of organized it in this way where it didn't quite have any official legal standing. And it was meant to be sort of the first step towards the actual independence of Catalonia. Now, to try and understand the argument that people who favor Catalonian independence would be making, they would say, well, look, when Scotland wanted to perhaps succeed, when the Scottish government said that they wanted to succeed from the Union, Westminster, the center of political power in the United Kingdom in London, allowed them a kind of referendum. And so then they had a legal referendum. In fact, a majority of the population opted to stay within the UK. You know, shouldn't the central government in Madrid have offered those who favor an independence for Catalonia something similar? Sort of what should the resolution of this crisis be in which you have a region in which, you know, about 50%, we don't know exactly how many people want to be an independent nation. What would the democratically fair way of resolving that question be? And has the central government in Madrid offered that option to people in Catalonia? Yeah, but that's also a very complex question. And to answer it in a proper way, I think we must remember something that people forget sometimes, is that the um, rise of this secessionist movement is the first form of national populism we've had in Spain. How we see things? Well, what I mean is that this is not so exceptional. This is our form of national populism. And the main reason of this rise is, of course, 2008 economical crisis. As I see things, this crisis was, well, the worst from 1929 crisis in, in Europe, right? Or in Occident. And uh, the 1929 crisis provoked, as you know very well, the rise of totalitarianism in Europe and not in Occident, right? Uh, fascism especially, in, and it finished in the Second World War. Well, the 2008 crisis provoked the rise of what we call national populism around Occident, right? It is one of the main reasons of that. And this national populism is different in every country. As, well, some people forget, forget that, the fact that fascism was also different in every country. It's not the same, the Nazis or the Italian fascism or the Spanish phalangismo. It was different. There were important differences. So the national populism has also differences. You know, the main for me, the symbol is Donald Trump in power in the States, but the Brexit was a perfect example of national populism, and in Italy, Salvini, etc. So, in Spain, the first visible national populism, the rise of this movement, was our form of national populism. How to deal with that? Well, it's difficult, because Spain is a sort of federal country, and the government in Catalonia has many, 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 many tools has a lot of power. Education, police, it's an enormous power. And uh, they used all this power to support this movement. What we can do with that? Yes, the Scottish example, it's uh, as the example in Quebec. It's uh, the example of democracies with successionist movements that decide to organize referendums. At the beginning, I must confess that I was in favor of the referendum. I'm not right now. First of all, 
This is a reactionary movement. That's what must be said. This is very important to say. This is not a democratic or progressive movement. It is not. I've called it the revolution of the rich. Well, Thomas Piketty, the uh, French economist, says something similar. The revolution of the rich. I mean, Catalonia is one of the richest parts of Spain that wants to separate for the poor parts of Spain. As happens everywhere, uh, Yasha, in Europe, it's the north that wants to separate from the south. It's always the rich people that want to separate from the poor people. This is not progressive. This is not just. This is not, right? Or, or in Italy, it's the north that wants to separate from the south. Or in Germany, the south from the north. So in Spain, in Catalonia, same. Even it's the rich people in Catalonia who wants to separate, not the poor people. Anyway, the idea of a referendum, I was for it at the beginning. Now I think it's a really bad idea. Why? They talk about the self-determination right. Obviously, this is not valid for us because obviously we self-determinate ourselves when we choose our leaders and we are in a democracy, a real democracy, not a perfect democracy. Perfect democracy doesn't exist, but the real democracy. What they ask for is that the self-determination right, the, the right to separate from the rest of the country. And uh, the international right has serious reason to oppose to that. When they created this right, they thought about colonies. The international right says only for countries which are in war or which have no rights or where human rights are completely destroyed or in danger, which is not obviously the case. Catalonia is not a colony. We are not at war. Human rights are respected. Spain is a democracy. Not a perfect democracy, but the democracy, etc. I mean, yes, at the end, the possibility of a referendum of succession should be there. But it's the last possibility because it's really, really, really bad possibility. You cannot go back. It is a very divisive, and very destructive possibility. And that's why all democratic constitutions, that's one of the reasons why all democratic constitutions don't accept this, this solution. So as a last question, we've talked a lot about how to deal with history at the national level, but it strikes me that you thought a lot about history personally. A lot of your books are in one way or another about the history of your country and trying to grapple with it, including the history of your own family. What advice do you have for listeners who are trying to figure out what to think about the history of their own country, the history of their own family? How do you face up to that history in a way that's both honest and productive? Yasha, I told you that past is a dimension of the present, without which the present is mutilated. So in the same way, the, the personal is a dimension of the collective. You cannot think of yourself without thinking or without understanding your country, the place where you live. So my idea with the personal past is similar or the same as with the collective past. We all have also, from a personal point of view, we have also a bad heritage and a good heritage. We all have it in our families. And this heritage lives with us because past lives in the present. Because my parents lives in me. They live in me. And my grandparents, etc. And so it is important, first of all, to know this heritage, to know this past in all its complexity. And it is very, very, very extremely difficult because our past, personal and collective, 
it's not, not always beautiful. I would say ne it's never beautiful, you know, completely perfect and completely wonderful. And com this is not like that. It is a complex past. Sometimes it's very hard, but it's good to know it and to understand it. I wanted to understand in my most personal book, which is Lord of All the Dead, why the hero of my family was a fascist, why he went to the war, why he became a warrior, why he became an phalangist, why he died in combat in the worst battle of the history of Spain at the end of the Spanish Civil War. Why a young boy like that? My family was not rich at all, and he wanted to be an intellectual. He was very curious. For the first time, my family had a boy that wanted to go to the university, a poor family. Why he became a fascist? And why for my mother, he was a hero, the man who went to the war to save the country, the homeland, to save the religion, to save the family, to save everything. So for me, that has been very important. Why? Because I insist we all have a good heritage and a bad heritage. And if we know and we understand our bad heritage, we can control it. If we don't know it and we don't understand it, it's this bad heritage that governs us. And then we have problems with ourselves and we have problems also with our collectivity, with our country. So I think it is very important to know and to understand. Javier, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.